And anytime that I have felt really lost in my work life, and it's happened a lot, um, I've noticed that I just didn't have direction in my personal life as well. They feed each other, or they should, right? They should they should kind of be in alignment with each other. You don't have to be doing the same thing in both your work life and your personal life. But um, when I create too big of a wall between my personal life and my work life, I tend to lose direction in both. It's my belief that we have seven opportunities to make it big really big, like a quantum leap forward in your career, and you're given only so many cards to play in life. Now for us, one of those seven opportunities came in the form of a music video. In 2006, Robert Howes came to us with this amazing treatment about doing an animated Rorschach test for this new band called Gnarls Barkley. The song was called Crazy, and it was for their debut album, Saint Elsewhere. It was an opportunity too good for us to pass on. The work itself wound up winning an MTV Music Video Award for Best Direction and Best Editing. And so, of course, all this attention came to us and we got a ton of inquiries for new business from clients from ad agencies. We got a lot of press attention and it felt great. But back then, we weren't as sophisticated in terms of how to maximize on the attention that we were getting. So I believe, as nice as that was to win those awards and get the attention and some of the work that came after, we did not fully capitalize on that moment. My next guest has had that giant moment. You decide if he's made the most of that opportunity or not. So my name is Justin Cohn. Uh, I think most people know me as the guy who created um, Motionographer, the website. And if you haven't been to Motionographer, it's a blog, basically, that tries to cover... Uh, motion design, motion graphics, um, animation, and some kind of emerging storytelling stuff, although that's probably a minor uh, minor part of what we do. Um, we also created a festival called F5, which we put on three times. It's not like a normal, regular thing. We just do it whenever we feel like we can do it. Um, that's usually in New York. Um, we just launched uh, this past year, we launched something called the Motion Awards, which is an award show dedicated to motion design and animation um, and that went really well, so we'll keep doing that. And um, pre- previously, I've you know I've worked kind of across the industry in a bunch of different capacities over the last fifteen years. I've worked in higher education, uh, both as a kind of researcher and tech guy, uh, and then for a short period at SCAD as a professor, just for a year. Um, I worked at SIOP for about three and a half years uh, as a director of special projects, uh, which I did a whole bunch of t- different things there. Uh, I was a graduate intern at Apple when the iPhone launched. Uh, I've done a little bit of freelance work for Adobe and NBC Universal. Every one of those jobs, I did different stuff. Um, so the good thing is that I've seen the industry, however you define that, from a bunch of different perspectives. The bad thing is that I never have gotten very deep in mm. any one area. And I'm, I think I'm pretty good about admitting um, when I'm you know, out of my depth. And so I'll try to do that today when we chat. Okay, perfect. That was a, a lovely introduction and, and pretty thorough. It, it mirrors what I read about you on LinkedIn. So oh, let, me, let me start off with this question. I mean, some people who are listening to this might be scratching their heads like, you described a lot of different things and hmm. maybe they're, they've lost their bearings. And when we talk about this, somebody tells me, you know, I'm a professional graphic designer. And I say, is this how you earn your primary income? And they said, no. So I said, you're not a professional graphic designer, then you're doing whatever it is. If you're waiting tables, you're a professional waiter and you're doing graphic Mm. design on the side. 
What is your profession? What is it that you get paid to do? That's, yeah, that's great. And that's an interesting litmus test too that you have. Um, so for the past, I want to say three years, I left PSYOP in 2014 or maybe maybe 2015, right around there. And ever since then, um, I made the leap to doing motionographer-related activities full-time. And so uh, the first thing uh, that we had to figure out, my partner, his name is Carlos Alasmar, and he really deserves as much credit as me for motionographer, F5, everything else we've done. He's always been kind of in the shadows. Uh, he, he prefers it that way. Um, but he is the financial guy. He's also, you know, interested in strategy and all those things. So I asked him before I left Psyops, like, do you think I could do this full time? And he kind of looked at the numbers and was like, well, you know, we can't quite, uh, cover it. The only revenue we had at that time, uh, and really to this time, uh, to, to this date too, is, was from our job board, um, where people can post job listings for a small fee. Um, and we weren't quite covering it then, you know, at the salary that I needed to make in order to like, you know, survive in New York City. But he said he would cover the gap um, himself. So for the next, you know, two and a half, three years, the goal was let's get, you know, that job board uh, up to snuff and and hopefully breaking even um, and look for other sources of revenue or support. Um, So, you know, I guess the the question I'm answering it in kind of a weird way, but my job is motionographer full time. That means writing and editing and working with other people to grow it and make it more interesting. Um, the revenue comes from a job board and and also our supporters on Patreon, who we really couldn't do a lot of what we're trying to do now without our supporters on Patreon. Patreon's like a crowdfunding platform. Um, so increasingly, though, I hope that when I answer this question in say six months to a year. I hope that my answer will be, um, I'm making software. I'm making products that are ooh. making people's lives better. Yeah. I'm re- <laughs> the plot thickens. Ooh. And my fingers really are like trying. doing a little Dr. Evil thing here. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I want to follow up on that. Put, putting your fingertips together. Yes. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really trying to make that transition. And I've wanted to make that transition for, well, really since I left PSYOP. Um, I learned enough at PSYOP. Uh, that I thought, oh, you know, I really actually like product development. I like the challenge of of creating software or software-based experiences. How can I do that? You know, how can that become my full-time job? Well, you know, it wasn't, I couldn't just do that immediately um, with Motionographer. We had to kind of, you know, get it up to snuff and, and have it break even, as I said. Now that we've reached that point and we've got some help with Motionographer, um, I'm able to shift gears towards, um, you know, what I'm calling product development, which... You know, I don't know where you're coming from, but, you know, or I know where you're coming from, Chris, but you know, the listeners, um, when I say product development, that's very, very broadly speaking. Digital products, I'm most interested in, in web applications because I love the web um, and building platforms and, and tools for the community, basically, to make their lives better, make their lives easier, hopefully. Mm, okay. There's so many things here. Just I had my list of prepared questions, but they just You're went like, out the door. Throw it out the window. <laughs> yeah, it's out the door right now. And cool. let me just follow a couple of different things here. Okay. So you've been doing, uh, I think, Motionographer since 2006, if I remember that correctly. That's when it launched, yeah. Okay, so it's been 11 years. And it's been interesting. This is a total shock to me, by the way, that mm. Motionographer isn't already a, a way for you to sustain the lifestyle that you want because it's the... Mm. by and I'm pretty sure this is supported, but isn't it the number one resource in the world for motion design? You know, there was a time when I wouldn't have hesitated in saying yes to that. Um, 
now it, I think it depends on who you are. It's, it's hard for any one source to be that dominant in the world of social media. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, I, I'd like to be, you know, humble and, and honest in saying that, you know, I'm not sure that there is any one source. We were definitely for a while before social media kind of uh, splintered everything. Mm -hmm. um, I think if you were going to choose a non-social media source uh, to to follow for motion design, motionographer would be a good bet. I see. Be a good place to start. But I think for anybody, it shouldn't be your only one. <laughs> okay. But, but I, thank you. Yeah, I see what you're trying to say there. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating to me that, first of all, that you have this partner that I didn't even know about until I started reading yeah. up on you, right? So mm -hmm. He has been in the shadows and then he put up his own money to mm -hmm. kind of cover the gap. So mm -hmm. he's as vested of a partner as you can have, right? Yeah, he's heavily invested, yeah, right. emotionally so, and financially. <laughs> yeah, and, and he, he's like mentored you and all that kind of stuff. We'll talk about him in a little bit, but mm -hmm. I'm curious why or uh, the decisions that you've made. I, I see that there's this very altruistic approach that you're doing to things. Like mm -hmm. when I read about F5, you, mm -hmm. you were trying not to make any money. Mm -hmm. And is that the same philosophy behind motionographers, not to make money? Uh well, okay, so making money, revenues is okay, uh, but in terms of profit, we try to put as much back in as we can. So yeah, we basically have a break-even mentality. So we do function in that way as a non-profit or a not-for-profit. And we actually, we actually, Carlos and I went through all the legal trouble and legal expense about um, four or five years ago to set up a 501c3 non-profit entity in the United States, which is a big pain in the butt. Um, and we got to this point, I don't think I've ever told anybody this story before, by the way, so exclusive. Uh, we got to this point, <laughs> we were at the very end of this, we set up this nonprofit, and the lawyer was like, uh, okay, so now in order for this to work, you have to donate motionographer.com, you know, kind of as a property, a uh, piece of intellectual property. You got to donate it to the nonprofit, and then boom, everything is, you know, done. And Carlos was like, okay, you ready to do this? And something in me was like, uh, I was hesitating. Uh, and I was like, well, what am I hesitating for? And so he and I talked about it, as we always do. And I, I think what we didn't know, you know, before we got pretty deep into that process is that when you become a 501c3 true nonprofit under the, the eyes of the U.S. government, everything becomes really complicated. Simple accounting, for instance, like, it, it, everything has to basically be public, right? Which is which is cool. I'm all about transparency. That's great. But it's just really, really like you would have to. We would have to hire people just to do the paperwork on a quarterly basis, just to make sure that we were, you know, not breaking rules and being a good nonprofit. So then I thought, oh man, is this gonna is this gonna like hamstring us? So we gonna are we gonna not gonna be able to do the things that we want to do because we're going too far with this altruistic mindset? Are we? Is this is this actually gonna shoot us in the foot? And we, Carlos and I, came to the conclusion that, you, you know, maybe, yeah, maybe at this point in our lives, it actually isn't the smartest thing to do. We still have that nonprofit and we're still, we still have plans uh, or some ideas about what we want to do with it, but it's not kind of the all-in thing that we had originally. So Carlos is, um, I think he's, he is, deserves most of the credit again for this kind of altruism that we have at various times. So I had a site before Motionographer called Tween. And it was around for uh, three or four years, I guess, before motion. It was basically the same thing, just a smaller scale. And uh, I, I would dabble with advertising on that side. And I've dabbled with a motionographer here and there, too. Um, Carlos is 
always been opposed to advertising and sponsorship. Um, he just doesn't like the way that it introduces these third-party voices. You know, uh, it, it kind of like sullies the purity of the mm. thing. Um, and so we've always avoided that. And and in doing so, we probably uh, robbed ourselves of you know a lot of revenue potential. Um, he and I knew that, and we knew that that would mean that things move slower, things you know grow slower, and we've always been okay with it. Um, so that's yeah. I don't know if that answers your question. It's kind of a long-winded way to get to it, but yeah. Well, it's it's interesting that you have this mentor who's uh, diametrically opposed to this concept of commerce and mixing in with editorial. I think, and mm. I, I think that's really a great thing. But even mm-hmm. newspapers sell their magazine mm-hmm. or, or papers, right? Even they yeah. sell classifieds, and that's how they used to fund the operation. They can hire more writers and things like that. Yeah. They can grow the operation. Now, I'm not sure if this is still the case, but I know at one point in time, a bunch of my friends were contributors to Motionographer. Is that still the case? It's changed quite a bit now. Okay, it's so you really... got to update me. Give me the 2017 yeah. update. Yeah, Yeah, there was a time when we had... I mean, until pretty recently, actually, we had, uh, you know, 20, 25 people around the world who were kind of, you know, they'd find something they wanted to post and then they would post it or they'd internally say, hey, what do you guys think? Should we post this or not? Blah, 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 blah. Um, that became really cumbersome and it required a level of oversight from me that I just didn't want to, I didn't want to put the time and energy into it. I didn't feel like it was, it was, it was taking a lot of time and energy and so kind of organically, it started to whittle down to just a few people contributing. And then at some point, I kind of closed the door uh, entirely and said, okay, guys, if you want to post something cool, uh, but you know it's going to go through a little bit of an editorial process and, and we're gonna, we may reschedule it and we may change what you wrote, you know, in a way functioning like more of a traditional publication, I guess. Um, then Joe Donaldson started to get more involved, and, and my goal there with Joe, and, ha- and this is still the goal today, was to basically have him slowly take over the day-to-day of motionographer. Uh, and so Joe is an ex-Buck art director who's now a full-time professor at Ringling, um, and so he was kind of well-positioned to do this. And so for almost a year now, Joe's been getting more and more and more involved, and we've been able to pay him. Um, a little bit of a salary thanks to Patreon uh, supporters. Um, and so it's really just Joe and I right now that are really running the day-to-day. We do have now, under Joe, he came up with the idea of guest authors. Those aren't necessarily regular contributors, but they're guest authors from industry who bring you know an outside perspective to things. So that's, that's different and new. Um, we are going to start building up a contributor team, a team of paid contributors, to kind of keep watch over certain areas of motion design and animation that we feel we're not uh, properly covering right now. Um, That's something we're working on uh, over the next six months to a year. Do you think the community rallies behind you and saying, yeah, keep it ad-free, we'll we'll donate money through Patreon and we'll support you by volunteering to work? Or do you think maybe they're indifferent about it and say, you know, Mm -hmm. run advertising. If we can get more content and more coverage... Uh, that you become the first and last place I I begin and end my day, Suppose uh, if I'm Mm -hmm. in the motion industry. Mm -hmm. Uh, Where do you think they net out on that? I've asked them that uh, several times, and every time their response is, run ads, who cares, you know? 
Um, and I find that interesting. Uh, it, it's it's kind of a relief because wow. we, yeah, I mean, everybody's like, do it, you know, because I guess we've we've earned enough trust with enough people in our in our readership that they're like, you know, you know, we, we you're not going to ruin things or whatever. Obviously, those ads would still have to have a lot of rules. We wouldn't let studios or production companies or agencies advertise. It would have to be more just like products and services kind of thing. Um, so, you know, and I've talked to Carlos about this a lot too, and I think Carlos and I have both changed over time we've changed or softened on that and so maybe we will Mm. figure out a way to run ads or do some kind of sponsorship thing in the future it's something we're definitely open to um i've been talking to amid uh uh, who runs cartoon brew and uh lola who is half of art of the title.com and we're talking about maybe partnering somehow um you know to help each other out because we all have like we all kind of fit together really well I'd love for that to happen. Um, so yeah, we're we're softening on that, and the, and I think the community in general is cool with it. I think they are, and I would love to get your take on this because I have a slightly when I say slightly, that's understatement, <laughs> different <laughs> point of view. Uh, mm. Because you know I'm in the education space now, and I've mm. got two companies, and the way that I have this grand vision, right? And the and the vision means that this is the this global thing, and we have all these people who can earn a living doing what it is that we do in order for that dream to work i have to make money and like you we spend every dollar and then some because i have an alternate source of income that is blind Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. i can pump the money into this and i just wanted to keep growing so revenue is very important to me and how we get there in terms of sponsorships ads kits that we sell all that stuff it doesn't matter to me because that allows the dream to happen Mm -hmm. and something wonderful is happening too which people are donating money to us. Mm. You know, we, we decided to say, you know, hmm, a lot of people want to contribute and they don't know how. Some of the yeah. things that we sell are too expensive. So we created a donate button on our shop shopping cart. Uh-huh. And sure enough, last week, an order popped in twice. I'm like, oh, that's really cool. It's not a yeah. giant sum of money, but it's interesting sure. how people will want you to keep doing what you're doing. They, they love it. You know, yeah. it's like an NPR model. So they're going to just keep giving it to you. And <laughs> the public radio model. Yep, exactly. Right? And I'm okay with yeah. that. And even public yeah. radio has sponsors. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, this is why, again, Patreon has been so important for us because it's an easy way for us to uh, allow people to contribute, you know, if, for for just because they want to. You know, we give them perks and things. But the truth is, and I'm, I'm always trying to be upfront about this, like, you know, we can't spend a lot of time on the perks and those kinds of things, because then the return on investment doesn't make sense. So um, yeah, I'm with you all the way. The The thing about advertising and the reason that we have been so kind of, I don't know, wishy-washy about it is, <laughs> is uh, you know, the, the return on investment up to this point, uh, when we have tried or when we've looked at it, it's not, it's not been very good. Um, the, the best situation we have was, was the deck. Have you heard of that before? The deck? No. So it's gone now. It recently just shut down. But the deck was created by Jim Kudal, Kudal, um, who is you. I don't know if you know him, but like Kudal Partners was like for me early on in the early two thousands. They were a huge for a source of inspiration and, and news and stuff. They had a lot of different projects that they did. But um, he started this advertising network called the Deck, and it was great. He had all the all the publishing partners. Um, and Motionographer was one of them, were websites for designers and animators and filmmakers and stuff, mostly designers and animators. And then 
his um, the advertisers that would advertise on the deck were like products and services that I actually used, you know, like uh, field notes, you know, like the little the little notebooks, like they advertised on there. And mm-hmm. uh, I think like Trello used to advertise. I use Trello all the time, you know. So like these services and products that we actually used and, and the agreement we had was awesome with them because it was like, um, here, just put this little bit of JavaScript at the tiny little ad. We made like 1500 bucks a month, 2000 bucks a month, something like that you know, which is enough to pay, you know, a contributor or something. Right. Uh, but they shut down. Oh. And if you go if you go to the deck, uh, if you Google the deck okay. advertising or something like that, right. he has an explanation about why they shut down. It, it's a lot of it is just the underlying kind of the change in, in the landscape of advertising or this display advertising, which is banner advertising. Um, it, it's really, it's a game now for, for Google and the people who can track your data and then resell that data. Um, and you know, we w- even if we could do that, we wouldn't do that. And so the whole like advertising banner display advertising thing, I think is just, it's like this, well, it's drying up or if it's not drying up, it's, it's maybe, it feels a little bit poisonous now. Um, and so we, we are able to open other things, you know, Amid from Cartoon Brew, he does, sponsored content uh, I'm trying to learn more about that the problem with sponsored content is you end up spending a lot of time and right. energy finding the clients massaging the content making sure it's editorially appropriate so then what's your return on investment and this is why mm. uh, I'm getting more interested in product development and, yeah. and those kind of things because for me not only am I more passionate about it and I feel like it's actually solving a problem or we can solve problems out there in the world um, it's a kind of more sustainable or scalable way for us to create revenue, which then can feed back into the motionographer community. Right. I'm right there with you in terms of the sponsored content stuff because mm. we've dabbled with it. It is uh-huh. a lot of work, and we don't yeah. have to approach them per se, but once the thing is done, you wind up writing a spot for them, and it's a lot yeah. of work for the amount of money you get paid, and, and then it yeah. muddies the editorial waters, if you will. Where exactly. people are like, wait a minute, this is not uh, from you guys. This is that you're you're trying to get me to buy something, aren't you? Hundred percent. Yeah. I would rather just be really upfront about it. This is an ad, guys. This is it. Or hey, we really love and believe in this, and we're doing it anyways, and we're not even getting paid to talk about it. Yeah, now, you that's seem cool. To, yeah, you seem to be very sensitive around showing bias. <laughs> right, yeah, I, I try. It's impossible because I'm still a human. We, I'm going right. to be biased just as much as anybody else. But yeah, and I remember um, something that I loved, but it was also very controversial, and I could totally see why it became a problem for you. But you had the the cream of the crop list. I can't remember what you called it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, the cream of the crop. That's what yeah, it's called. And yeah, it was like in that moment, and when when motion was probably at at its peak, everybody wanted to be on that list because it meant that advertisers like ad agencies i should say we're gonna see that and like huh who's that firm so you were and for a long time the number one (laughs) referral source to our site which i'm sure is is not uncommon i'm sure everybody that was in that's in the industry (laughs) looked at their analytics and said my god motionographer is driving all this traffic to us so the question for you is this a (laughs) what happened why'd you get rid of it and Mm -hmm. Let me follow up with the second question later. Just do one, one question at a time. Okay, yeah. So yeah, so the cream of the crop started as a short list. I think it started with 10 studios. This is back in like, it started on tween actually, and then we carried it over to motionographer for a little while. So it started in like 2004, uh, I think. 
uh, and had like 10 studios that we thought were like the 10 best studios now, you know, like the <laughs> top 10. And uh, then we started adding some other, we had like sound design on there at some point. Uh, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, we had, uh, I want to say individuals, which I don't even know how the hell yeah. we, I don't know if I can cuss on this, but uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know how we qualified that. But then we expanded studio to 20. So to to corroborate what you were saying, I didn't realize for you that that was true, that the traffic was, was being driven, uh, that we were driving traffic to your site. But I do know, I went to visit a studio in New York City who was on the cream of the crop. And he said, let me show you something. And he pulled me around to his his desk and he opened up the analytics for his studio's website and 80% of their traffic was from Oceanographer. Yeah. 80% of the traffic. Now, that doesn't mean that those are all customers, right? I mean, it right. could have just been fanboys and stuff because they were making amazing work, blah, blah, blah. But still, there's some value to that. Traffic's so traffic, I man. had, what's that? Traffic is traffic. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and, and then, you know, it's up to him to spin it to his advantage, you know? So I had two reactions to that. One reaction was like, wow, that's cool. And the other reaction was like, oh, snap, that's not good. And the oh, snap, that's not good reaction was that... <laughs> so back then, this is in the early mid-2000s, it was fairly easy and not super controversial to say these 10 studios are killing it. Yeah, Blind was on there forever. Um, and, uh, and, you know, a lot of PSYOP was always on there, you right. know, Buck who, Buck actually, you know, kind of came about a little later, but yeah, they were, a lot of people were on their eyeball and stuff, you know, imaginary right. forces and nobody would, you know, be like, yeah, those guys don't need to be on there. Right. But then, um, as everybody started wising up to the desktop revolution and also the content, the needs for content across the web and, and other platforms started to grow studios started popping up around the world like every week there was a new studio and some of them were really amazing and making incredible work and so you know i would look at those and go well how, how am i how can i quantify who deserves to be in the top you know 20 or whatever and this was this was you know doubly true for individuals we had this individual list and i don't know what we were thinking there but uh so at some point, I thought, this isn't realistic. We can't keep up with the studios. We can't be, um, we can't really be honest with ourselves about this. And so uh, let's shut it down. Uh, and, and it really pissed a lot of people off because it was a kind of easy, convenient thing. I also had a little bit of drama behind it because it was, you know, fun to see who was on it this week and who's not next week. Kind of like, you know, watching Billboard, uh, you know, number one hits. Although I don't think anybody cares about that anymore. But uh so when we shut it down, people were like, ah, oh, you know, I still, even at Blend, I went to this conference last weekend in Vancouver called Blend, and um, people there were upset about it, and they were asking about it. So I do have a plan for how we can bring it back in a more mm -hmm. quantitative, or at least slightly more quantitative way. And that would be that, um, basically, if we had a full credits system, like a full hyperlinked credit system, kind of like, kind of like the way IMDb works, where, you know, let's say you see Blind, right? And you can click on Blind and you see everything that Blind has done. Um, and you can see the roles that Blind has played maybe. And, you know, they have production company credits, but they might also have, you know, writing credits or even agency credits, whatever. So uh, if we had that, which we don't because we're built on WordPress and it's not the greatest for structured data. Um, if we had a credit system, a hyperlink credit system, from that, we could easily derive a kind of leaderboard cream of the crop 2.0, right? Because mm. you could say, well, look, this studio, whoever it is, Studio X, right. they've been posted 
26 times in the last, you know, five years. And Studio Y has been posted 22 times. Studio Z has been posted 20 times. Boom, you've got a leaderboard. Uh, does that get rid of bias uh, and all those other things? Absolutely not. It's just kind of quantifying. It's backing up a little bit like, well, this is why we're, you know, this is why these people are on the leaderboards because they've been posted a lot. You know, it's only as good as the posting. And, and Joe and I and everybody else who contributes, you know, who has contributed, we all have tons of biases and stuff too, you know. So it doesn't really fix it, but it's a way to maybe bring it back and, and make it a little bit um, more transparent. So mm. um, that's something I'm working on as well. That's a, that's, see, I would call that a product, even though most people may not think of that as a product. They'd be like, that's just a website. I'm like, well, it's, it's a thing that brings value to people's lives that has to be built and it has to be shipped in a way, right? It ships to the web, but still shipped. So that to me is a product. And that's why I'm so interested in product development. Interesting. Well, I say this uh, in all sincerity. You are much more of a gentleman than I am because uh, I'm an opinionated, <laughs> biased person. And I'm, you know, I'm tired of trying to play nice and, and I'm just yeah, going to be who I am, that. you know? And yeah, I like you, that. You're, you. <clears throat> you're very egalitarian in how you do things. And you know, I have to respect that. That's a different way of doing things. Because I always thought, you know, Zagats or Ebert or mm-hmm. whoever, when they were alive, they just mm-hmm. gave you their opinion. And mm-hmm. at the end of the year on K, uh, what is it, uh, KCRW, mm-hmm. the different DJs would put their 10 best. And it's always great because it's like, I need to discover new music. Mm-hmm. And I don't question it. It's fine. So maybe one mm-hmm. of the solutions is to pick three people, yourself, mm-hmm. maybe somebody a little younger who is mm-hmm. like all about whatever the latest, you know, that just came out like two seconds ago. I'm all about that. Where each person yeah. can put together their own 10 best list. And it's just, it's subjective and just say, you know what? Yeah. This yeah. is how I do it. I'm like, screw you guys, you know? Yeah. This is what well, I that's like. Why we created, that's why we created the Motion Awards. It's like, yeah, it's a way, a more egalitarian way to create this list that you're talking about. Very and, democratic. Very yeah. democratic. And the way that we, we tried to do it was we had, I mean, we ended up with 135 judges. Um so, uh, and they're all across the board. You've got like people who've been working for like four or five years in industry and people who've been working for 30 years in industry. Um, it skews towards more experienced people as, as I think it should. Right. Um, and, and it turned out, pre- I mean, for the first year, I'm really happy with it. We've, I have, I have a giant notebook of notes, uh, in Evernote about what we're going to do differently next year, but it turned out really well. And I was pleased with, there was a, a thing where judges could nominate, uh, best new studio and best new talent. Uh, and there were some rules that, again, need to be reworked a little bit around those. But um, there's some really cool, surprising stuff. And another thing that we did with that that I'm, I'm proud of and I think worked out is when we created, when we invited the judges to be judges in the first place, um, I made a point of, as, as hard as I could, I tried to make the mix of judges 50-50 between men and women ended up being a little bit more women than men. And I also tried as much as I could to find people of color, which, as you know, in this industry is not easy. Right. Um, but, I, you know, if you look at the judges' pictures uh, on the on motionawards.com, you'll see that, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a better uh, diverse kind of picture than the industry actually is. And some people actually had a problem with that. They were like, look, if the industry is 80% male, shouldn't your judges be 80% male? Or if it's, you know, 80% white, shouldn't it be 80% white? And um, I get I get that thinking. I do understand where they're coming from. But I feel that with an award show, uh, and I think the Oscars are a kind of a good <laughs> case study here, 
the award show is what you aspire to be. It's about it's about aspirational goals and it's about what does the industry you know want to be. Um, can we can we can we show people that things are possible that maybe they didn't think were possible? And so, um, yes, yeah, it's all a very long-winded way of saying that you know this is I, I I did feel there was value in the cream of the crop and and just having an opinion. But I didn't want it to all be on one or two or three people. I thought let's let's try to make this you know, a little bit, um, I don't know, more more diverse. More to come after a quick break. Be back in a minute. Heyo, John Roth here from the future. I'm here to tell you guys about the pro membership. A lot of you have been asking about how you can engage with us and where you can go to meet like-minded individuals. Well, I'm here to tell you how. For $75 a month with the Pro Membership, you can join Chris Doe's collective of creative entrepreneurs, which includes everyone from designers to strategists to writers and more from all over the world. Also included is over 40 hours of exclusive videos on a variety of topics, from the business of design to project management, and access to two Pro Calls a month, where you can have your questions answered by Chris live. All that and more in your Pro Membership for just $75 a month. Not afraid of commitment? Sign up for a year and save $150. The Pro Membership, exclusively in the online store. Go to thefuture.com slash shop for more. So kind of in my mind, I'm imagining something now. You don't have to answer this question in case it's closer <laughs> to home than, than I think. But I have okay. to imagine at some point, a couple of executive producers or studio owners realizing that you're a big driver of traffic to their site and ultimately tied to their business that they were like wooing you to like fancy dinners or, you know, having these oh, yeah, meetings and just, how that did that make you feel? Uh, pretty uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, it happened. It used to happen now, a lot. Don't especially... skip any details there. Like I need yeah, to know. No, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you everything. It's oh, cool. Cause it. I'm, I'm totally cool comp- talking about it. Um, especially during, before Facebook, uh, changed its kind of pages algorithm and really social media started to change things when we really were like this more or less singular voice out there. Um, I got wined and dined a lot, especially when I lived in New York. I lived in New York a total of about six years. I don't live there anymore. I live in Austin, Texas. But, you know, people be like, hey, we want to take you to dinner. And, and I knew what was going on. You know, <laughs> they want to get me drunk and, you know, and then get me to commit to posting something. But um, I would always make it clear before I accepted any invitation. I'd be like, you know, um, sure, I'd love to learn more about what you guys are doing, learn your story and all that. But like, you know, this doesn't mean that we're going to be posting your work more. And oh yeah, 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 it's cool, it's cool, it's cool, it's cool, it's cool. You know, but eventually there was always like the other shoe would drop, you know, and, and they would be like, hey, you know, uh, it was really great uh, getting dinner last week. Oh, I just you by the way, we have this new thing that dropped, and maybe you'd like it for motionography, you know. I said, oh, we'll check it out, you know. And nine times out of ten, we wouldn't post it. No, I'd be like 95 times out of 100, we wouldn't post it. And uh, which is because we don't post much. You know, we just don't post much on Motionographer. And uh, I think there were some cases where I definitely angered people. I just got, I got more and more comfortable with that. I, I got comfortable with, you know, friends, actual genuine people I've known for a long time sending me their work and, and then having to tell them, Sorry, you know, we're not going to post it. Um, and I think maybe in some cases, you know, I, I lost friendships or whatever over that. If if I lost a friendship over it, that, then it clearly wasn't that good of right. a friendship to begin with, right? Right. That was how I comforted myself with that. 
Um, it's become less of an issue. I still have to be firm sometimes, uh, especially with PR agencies. And I'm, I'm totally sympathetic. So I don't know if people understand how it works sometimes. So most of the time, if a studio creates something or an individual creates something and they want, they want it to be a motionographer, they just send it to us and themselves. They send it directly themselves. Some studios, especially the older studios, use PR firms, um, and these can be quite effective. Did you guys ever use PR? Did you guys ever yeah, hire? Yeah, yeah. We had yeah. several different firms, yeah. Yeah, and it's it can be a very smart thing to do because what you're doing is you're hi- just the same way that you would hire a designer to be an expert uh, designer to you know to help you communicate your, your messaging. You hire a PR person to help spread your, your work to the right people, to the right audience. So we get a lot of PR people on Motionographer who are approaching us, you know, and they are paid to be persistent. You know, they're paid to try to get stuff on the site. And I've, you know, struck up friendships and stuff with some of these people over time. And the best ones, the best PR people know that if they're pushing a project that isn't a good fit for Motionographer, they know it. You know, they know it's like, okay, this is never going to get on, you know. They won't tell me that, but they know it. But what they do is they, they build a relationship with me over time. Um, they're honest. They'll say, look, I'm pretty sure this doesn't fit, but I, I, you know, I want to show it to you. I need to show it to you. Um, if there's something in here that's interesting, let's please talk about it. You know, Then over time, what happens is you know, we build trust in each other, and they might come back with a project that, again, doesn't fit. But um, there might be a story that's related to it, and so we can start working on that. We can be like, okay... Um, you know, you guys have done six of these projects. We haven't posted any of them, but, you know, they're all about, I don't know, immigrants in the United States or something like that. Let's talk about, there's something there. Why do you guys keep doing work for immigrants in the United States? You know, then there might be a story there and then you keep digging, you keep digging, you keep digging. That's when a PR person is really valuable is when they're willing to do that extra long-term work. Um, but when they just keep submitting stuff over and over and over and over and over, <laughs> just, I'm just like, okay, no, right. <laughs> yeah, we're not, we're not going to post. It so, sounds yeah. like when they're working with you to help shape and find a story, because you're first yeah. and foremost telling stories, right? So it can't just right. be um, a show and tell, like, here it is again. Here's the thing. Here's the challenge. You have mm-hmm. to find something interesting, a human interest right. uh, in, in the story itself. Otherwise, why are people going to care? Exactly. Okay. That's something we're, I mean, to be honest, that's so obvious and so true. And it's something that really, and before Joe got on board, Joe Donaldson, our editor, that thanks again to Patreon, um, before he got on board, I really wasn't thinking that way. You know, I just wasn't thinking. I was just like reacting and pumping stuff out. Joe has been like, no, 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 no man. Like, you gotta, it's like, you know, this is a platform, you know, you got to give people different voices, tell different stories. And so he's been pushing that and we're going to be doing more of that. We still have quickies and quickies are just like a little showcase thing and, um, but, you know, that that's a little bit like a drive-by thing. He's kind of, oh, cool, okay, drive-by inspiration. But the, the articles and longer-form stuff, you know, yeah, there has to be some kind of human connection there. Okay. I haven't even asked any of the questions that the people have yeah. wanted me to ask, nor my own questions. So I'm oh going to ask gosh, you okay. to do, like, think of this. It's not really lightning round, but yeah, I just want to plow through these things, okay? Yeah, yeah. And so, if you they're great like questions it, you say from pass, Twitter. all right? Yeah, so there's okay. a bunch of things. First, and this is a deeper question. This is from mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. is without talking about the software and the platform you're going to build, just looking at Motionographer today, at least the last 10 years, tell me what success looks like to you as far as Motionographer and what does failure look like? Mm, okay. How do you define Failure those? I'll do first because failure okay. is easy, right? <laughs> failure, <laughs> failure is that we just weren't able to create stuff 
that had enough value in it for the community to justify uh, you know my salary Joe's salary and anybody else we might have brought on and we, we decide that you know it's better to just to shut it down uh, and to move on to something else that's failure um, I don't you know know how much of a threshold we'll have for that failure we haven't had to deal with that yet so I don't know like you know how long it would have to suck for us to shut the doors but um, you know that's that's a bad thing success uh, you know for me um, I would love to have a team of full-time team of 10 or 12 people plus a whole bunch of other contributors um, working on different aspects of the business where we've got the editorial uh, kind of team that that would probably be led by Joe that does the the content side it's just creating stuff for the community and and rethinking what that means um, but then we have this other team that's building um, products uh, platforms maybe for the community maintaining those products and platforms for the community um, and growing value uh, that way um, and then we have a kind of even smaller uh, team maybe that's um, just doing kind of weird R&D stuff and, and thinking about the future. That to me would be an awesome mix, would be super happy. I'd be happy to do that for the next 20 years of my life if I could kind of get to that point. <laughs> hmm. Okay, that's great. Thanks for keeping that concise. So now sure. I have a follow-up question to that, which is, do you feel that, or do you see as uh, the motionographer brand tied to your own identity, meaning its success and failure and its prestige or whatever else is tied to you personally? Like, Do you feel affected by that? I'd be I'd be lying if I said it wasn't. Okay. Um, I'm not super comfortable with that. It, it I could say it's accidental, but that's kind of a it's kind of a bullshit response. It's not accidental. Uh, you know, it, it may not have been conscious, um, right? But you know, it started. I'm Mr. Motionographer, all that stuff, and I didn't. You know, I didn't reject it. I, I speak at events, and I, I hosted Blend at last weekend in Vancouver. Um, so I've encouraged it. Um, but also aware that there's a dark side to that. It, it, you know, it can limit the growth of the thing or people can look at me personally if they don't like my personal beliefs. You know, they're going to obviously transfer those onto motionographer and I wouldn't begrudge them you know, if they did think that way. Um, so a goal over the next several years is to, for me to, to step out of that spot, spotlight and, and let the, the light shine more broadly across the stage as we have more people involved. We don't really have any more people involved right now. So we have Joe, you know, and I... I want him to be speaking more and doing more, but um, I do need to kind of decouple my own personal life and persona from the site just for the health of the community, I think. Mm, great. Okay. Uh, I want to ask you a couple of business questions. Okay. Now, the first question I'm going to ask you is about you know overall site traffic as a barometer mm. for the entire motion industry. And, and that might mm. be a reach to say that, you know, but... Mm-hmm. How have you seen it? Like, where was the peak and where do you see it trending sure. in terms of the traffic? Yeah, it's a natural it's a natural assumption or a natural desire to try to link, you know, our traffic on motion to some larger truth or some larger insight. And I, I think it's problematic for many reasons. But first, right. I'll share the numbers. I'll, let's talk about the numbers just okay. so we can get them out of the way. So okay. we peaked in terms of traffic um, really from 2009 through 2012, those were our peak years. And those years are important. I'll get to that in a second. Um, and on, in those years, uh, it wasn't unusual for us to hit, you know, 1.2, 1.4 million page views a month. 
Wow. Um, in terms of users, let me tell you what users. I'm looking at these numbers right now live okay. in Google Analytics. So I'd say our average users for that same span were between 180,000 to 200,000 unique unique users every month, unique visitors to the site every month. Okay, so that that was wow. our peak. Now, what's funny about that period? There's a lot of funny things about that period. Um, I'll just also for contrast. So, so now and for the last probably two years or so, our traffic is around 600,000 page views a month with 75 to 100,000 unique um, unique visitors uh, to the site, which is still really still very good, good numbers. Yeah. Yeah, so between 2009 and 2012, <laughs> uh, I, I almost did nothing on the I, I basically just let it out and just kicked it out of my life because I was doing other things. I was running, first of all, we launched the first F5. Um, then I went and taught for a year. Teaching at SCAD for one year, that's the hardest I've ever worked in my life. And I've worked pretty hard throughout my life. And so I didn't have time for motionographer. Then after that, I started a studio with my buddy. We spun off a studio from a parent company here in Austin. That was another year. And so, and then I went after that, I went, moved back to New York, worked at NBC, worked at SIOP. I didn't have time for motionographer. And so I, for that same period, there was our highest traffic period. I wasn't really spending any time on the site. Now, other people were. Uh, Michelle Higa, uh, Michelle Higa Fox now, she deserves a lot of credit. She kind of kept it going. Matt Lambert early on was doing a lot of that too. Um, a lot of others were just kind of stepping up and picking up the slack, but it just wasn't, it, I wasn't giving it the attention or care that, that we have been. And I think really that doesn't speak much to anything other than what happened in the world of blogging and social media, <laughs> because around that same time is when you saw the rise of Facebook. Now, initially Facebook was a benevolent force for blogs like Motionographer and, and really for all kind of publishing based sites, news sites, whatever because it was this is pre-black box algorithm days for Facebook. This is hard for people to remember, but this actually was how it worked for a while. So we had a page on Motionographer, a Motionographer page on Facebook, and if we published something there, anybody who liked our page would see that thing. It would show up in their new, the wall before right, it was called right. the news feed. But then... You know, as more and more people started publishing and sharing on Facebook, they had a glut of, of um, content. And unlike Twitter, uh, they decided to make algorithmic filtering of that content the norm, the standard for Facebook. And as soon as they did that, it became a pay-to-play platform for publishers. And this was really starting to take effect in 2011, 2012. Um, so in other words, if you had a page, it didn't matter how many likes you had, uh, now it was mysterious uh, how how people were going to see things that you're publishing there. And as more and more people started consuming their news and inspiration through Facebook, um, this became a really big deal. It's still the number one um, kind of social media source for traffic to Motionographer. Um, but this black box, you know, has, has really killed us uh, and it's killed a lot of people. Now, having said that, we actually have, you know, a lot of things on Facebook that just live natively on Facebook. And so you could actually take uh, a lot of that activity. If you rolled in, you know, users and activity from Facebook into our analytics, which I haven't done, I'm too lazy. But if I did that, you know, our, it would boost our numbers quite a bit. And so it's so complex now. And that's just Facebook, you know, then Twitter is different and all this and Instagram, which we don't really use. You know, So if you kind of bundle them all together, maybe it's actually kind of close to where it was in 2009 through 2012. 
Um, it's just hard to say. But the point being, the overarching point being that, as you said before, looking at these numbers as an indicator of anything other than, you know, the numbers is is it's not that easy. It's very complicated. There's so many other factors that drive these things. I would argue that in terms of influence, we have maybe more now than ever, but it's it's a different kind of influence. Like we, we're posting things that I think have more emotional impact on people's lives. My favorite guest article recently we posted was from a really talented uh, art director named Laura Alejo, and she talks about you know having kids and the decision to work after having kids and how she did that and how she felt about it. You know, we never published anything like that 2009, 2012. We were just doing process breakdowns and interviews about, you know, cool work. But that piece from Laura, I mean, I got crazy stuff, you know, emails and people coming up to me at conferences and stuff saying, well, you know, thank you for posting that. It changed my life. It made me feel okay about, you know, being a mother or whatever, or it made me change, you know, how I'm doing things now. And so it's a different kind of influence, a different kind of impact. Uh, to me, it's, it's a more important kind of deeper impact, even if the numbers are smaller. That was an awesome answer. I'm looking for okay, my next you. question. And I think I, 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 it was a reach. I, I knew it was and, uh, as soon as I thought it and said it. And to, mm-hmm. to tie the health emotionographer, your influence and the reach to what's going on in the motion industry. But let me just ask the direct question. Mm-hmm. I mean, somebody said it very bluntly. And it's like, is the motion industry dying already dead? What's your yeah. take on that? And, and if you that. can, we have like 30 more questions. So let's power through yeah. this. I'll do it quick because I loved that question and I, I feel bad because my response on Twitter was very philosophical and it, I think it came off pedantic. I think I came off like I have the answers um, and I didn't mean to. So I should I should probably like privately apologize to whoever posted that because I just came off, I think, a little pompous. I no, you're to. fine, dude. Don't worry about um, that. So that question is great. Is this all your answer to the question is the industry dying or dead? It hinges 100% on how you define the industry. <laughs> so. I suspect that if you define the industry as creating motion graphics for TV and the occasional film title thing, uh, you know, commercials and that kind of thing, uh, it's not dead, but I mean, there's not much growth happening in that area. Uh, It's not an exciting place to be. Um, And so it can certainly feel dead or dying or at least brittle. Um, But for me, the industry is way more than that, right? The industry over the last 10 years has kind of exploded and the splinters from that explosion have landed everywhere. Uh, you know, there's Fortune 500 companies. Uh, well, there's even much smaller companies now that have uh, in-house design teams that are doing motion graphics work and motion an- and animation work. They're creating everything from explainer videos to uh, motion comps. You know, animating UIs for for prototypes and products coming out to full-on video production. And these are these in-house teams that y- you don't know about them because they're flying under the radar. You know, they don't have a portfolio site. Incredibly talented people, though. A lot of them are Silicon Valley companies that are well-funded. Um, super exciting stuff. It's just that it's all kind of a mess and it's distributed. So I don't think it's dying. I think it's just incredibly diversified and distributed across so many different vectors that it's it's hard to really even wrap your head around it. Cool. That, in case you were wondering, was a question submitted by Wet Boy Slim. I love the name. And yeah. Let's roll that right into Ryan Summers' question. I hope I got this right. Then mm-hmm. is the are the older, more established, larger to mid-sized motion firms, are they going to be able to survive this splintering? Hmm. Especially if they're in, let's just, for the most part, the, the way you make money doing motion design if you have a studio, as far as I'm concerned, is one mm-hmm. of two things. One, 
you're making commercials for advertising, 30-second spots. Two, mm-hmm. you're doing broadcast uh, brand identities because mm-hmm. promos don't pay much at all. No. I'm deliberately leaving out film title because I know people in the film title business, you will go out of business if that's your only business. And we joke oh, about Jesus, it all yeah. the time. Okay, so yeah. for yeah. people who service these two markets in the broadcast space or in the advertising space, mm-hmm. what's your take on these bigger to mid-sized firms? Are, are they going to be mm-hmm. able to thrive in this splintering? Yeah, and just, I. by the way, I love Ryan Summers. If you guys aren't following him, and I realized I somehow I had unfollowed him at some point when I kind of did an atom bomb on my Twitter account. You should follow Ryan Summers. He's been in the game for a while, and I like his voice. He Like you, he's very opinionated. And yes, he, has, he is. And, but he's pretty damn smart. A lot of what he says, I think, is just, uh, he's taught me a lot. Um, so he had another question about this, too, about institutionalized you know, motion design companies, which I love this term, institutionalized. Right. <laughs> Not only does it suggest they've been around for a while, it suggests they're like in straight jackets going crazy. Um, so they're an institution, is what he's saying. I yeah, think. that's what he means. Yeah. I know, and it's good and bad, right? Um, it's hard to say if they're like doomed. I think that um, I think they have to. I, I don't think. I think the threats to those uh, companies are the, the same threats that apply to every company. Um, so at Blend. Last weekend, I did a panel. Um, I moderated a panel with uh, TJ from Oddfellows, um, Elenia Notorangelo from Illo, and uh, Ed Barrett from Animate. And they're all three great studios. They're all pretty young, six years young or younger, six years old or younger. And Oddfellows, was, they were so honest about the need to diversify because I introduced them as an animation studio. And they're sitting, they were sitting on stage with Illo, who, Illo, if you're not familiar with them, they're uh, an 11-person shop out of Italy. They're an animation studio too, but I think they are future-proof, and I'll tell you why in a second. Animade, London-based studio, slightly larger than Illo. I think they have, I don't know, 15, 20 people, something like that. They are also future-proof, but for a different reason. Oddfellows is an animation shop, and moreover, they are at the moment a 2d animation shop really um and and they're amazing what they do but they know that that market forces will change tastes will change 2d animation will you know not be what it once was for them at least from a business perspective and and are they going to be ready for it and that was actually one of the questions i asked them on the panel and their answer was like, not right now. We're not really ready for it. Um, so the reason I say Illo and Animate are future-proof, and maybe this is something that institutionalized motion design companies can think about, is it? So Illo, you know, they created a, uh, an algorithmic platform called Algo, Algo short for algorithm. And they use this platform kind of as a partner to create work for a bunch of different uh, international entities. So their, their big case study for this is Bloomberg, Bloomberg, the news organization, right? Uh, but they did this for the Olympics too. So they ingest unstructured data about whatever, like the Olympics, for instance, you know, okay, uh, this person just won a gold and high dive. And Algo, this algorithmic platform they created, ingests that unstructured data. It parses the data. It looks for some kind of target variables. Okay, you know, a name, a country, a medal. Um, and then it, on the fly, it creates an After Effects animation. It actually opens After Effects. It does. You can even watch it working. It, it does the whole thing using scripting with After Effects. It creates an animation. It spits it out. And in some cases, uh, it shares it immediately to, to social media, all without a human touching it. Now, obviously, humans were involved, 
uh, in creating the design system and you know all the, the kind of creation of the algorithm itself. But they they call this content that they create uh, disposable content, and that's the world we live in right now, right? Disposable content on social social media and other platforms super important. So rather than getting trampled by the kind of um, commodification of what a lot of us do, uh, they embraced it and they're running with it. And they're doing amazing design too. They're not giving up on great design. In fact, I would, I would say they're, they're, they're helping it, it's helping them elevate their design. Uh, and that is a great lesson for anybody. Um, you know, I think it helps that they're small. Um, you know, there's only 11 of them mid-sized shops, motion shops, you know. So I don't know, Chris, I think you've had a, a bunch of different things. You even had like multiple city shops and stuff like My In my experience, once you get close to 20 people in your shop, in your studio, you have a problem because you have to introduce um, a, a mid-layer of management that creates all sorts of problems. Obviously, it creates more expense, more overhead, uh, because you're paying for people who actually aren't producing work directly. Uh, they're important people. I don't mean to say they're not, but they have to. They're not producing work directly. So now you got bigger overhead. You have more mouths to feed in general, and so shit, right? Now, now you have to take work that maybe you wouldn't have taken before. You have to manage culture. You have to think about culture in a way that you didn't think of before. That twenty-person mark around there, it's you know eighteen to twenty, starts to get hard. When you get over that number, as many you know kind of longer institutionalized shops are over that number. Uh, they have, in some cases, become inured to these challenges, and they've kind of just accepted that, well, that's just the way it is, right? This is status quo. We're going to have a lot of turnover. People aren't going to be happy that they have to do another pharma job, you know, advertising Viagra or whatever. That's just the way it is. Well, maybe, maybe not. Um, I, I haven't seen anybody do this in the motion space, but in the tech space... You know, one interesting model is the incubator model or the kind of umbrella model where you have a bunch of small teams functioning as independent companies. Each one of them is responsible for their own survival and their own innovation. Um, and then, you know, they, they kind of report and get support from the, the overarching entities. So um, there, and there's a million different ways of doing this. Betaworks is my favorite example. Betaworks is kind of a VC fund slash incubator, and they've you know, had a lot of success with this model. Uh, I wonder if that would work in, you know, the world of motion. Animate is kind of doing that. So Animate in London, amazing animation shop. Like, just one of the best character animation shops for, for you know, non-narrative commercial work out there. I love what they do. Um, they started a product called Boards, B-O-O-R-D-S. It's, an, it's a web app for online storyboarding, collaborative storyboarding. It's really well done. And it's become popular enough that it's basically become its own company. It, it is officially its own company. And so... They, whether by design or not, I don't know. They, they have, they're, they're, they're embracing this model that I'm talking about. So it, it, it can work. It, it does work. Um, getting older institutionalized shops to break down their thinking and, and take these risks is very, very hard. I know because I worked at one of those shops for three and a half years. Um, a lot of times you can find the enthusiasm internally, but when push comes to shove. It requires a financial investment. It requires losing money, planning on losing money, uh, at least for a little while. And that's a very hard pill to swallow for many people. Yeah, I, I think the the mindset is the hardest thing to change. Mm-hmm. And you lose some of your agility as you get bigger and bigger and the overhead just consumes you. And there's we can we can have a whole nother podcast on that. But Big so time. it sounds to me like the couple examples you've shared 
this might be uh, an alarm for a lot of people, or maybe not, but I heard mm -hmm. it. It's like saying software is eating the world. You can have your lunch eaten or you can be a part of the game. In, mm -hmm. in your example there with Algo, they are hastening the demise and the commodification of the, of the very industry that they're in too, in mm -hmm. using machine logic or AI mm -hmm. coupled with human beings to mm -hmm. produce stuff that a normal mm -hmm. person would have made in the past. And all, mm -hmm. bravo to them. And I'm yeah. not going to uh, mince words here for me. And mm -hmm. you could take it for what you want. People who are listening, mm -hmm. we run a 13-person, 14-person shop. Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you right now, for us on the West Coast, for the work that we do, the work in advertising is drying up and it's almost gone. Mm. So take it for yeah. what you want, you guys. Now, I'm not saying that the individual going to work at one of the tech firms like Apple or Microsoft. Jobs yeah. are plenty. Salaries are very high. Perks are yep. great. So the for the individual, God bless you. Go work there. Go do that. <laughs> Lots of opportunities to work in-house. I'm sure that all those people working at Best Buy or Target who are cranking out these animations that I see in the monitors, right? Yeah. There's opportunities for you there. But it's just yeah. a very different landscape than the one that you and I grew up in. Yeah. Well, it's... The rise of the solo shop too, you know, there are these like small one to two person shops that kind of scale up and scale down right. with freelancers, freelancer friends, you know, I right, think right. there's a lot of future for those shops as well. Um, but the midsize shop, you know, the size that blind is, midsize is, you know, it's all relative, but right. I think where you guys are, I would call a midsize shop. Mm -hmm. that is a tough road ahead. And Ain't I'm it? not telling you, it, yeah, it's, it's a <laughs> tough road. And I was at SIOP, you know, in New York when I was there, we had over 100 people in the New York building, and L.A. was maybe about the same size. Talk about feeding a beast. Uh, you know, they that beast grew up on quarter-million-dollar budgets for animation, uh, animated advertisement that just, just doesn't exist. I mean, it does exist, right. but it's super far and few yeah. between, and there's more competition than ever for it. Some of this just comes with maturity. I mean, look at live-action directing. This is incredibly competitive. It's an incredibly competitive. It makes the competition in motion design look like a joke. I mean, the comp competition there is, is insane, and the budgets there are also, you know, shrinking and, and going away. So, and yet somehow it persists. There's some weird kind of I don't know what it is, willful ignorance or something. I don't know what's driving it, but it still goes right. on. I don't understand it. It still goes on, but uh, anecdotally speaking, the, uh, I'm yeah. talking about like people that I know in the industry. The budgets yeah. are a tenth of what they used to be. The kinds yeah, of spots that you see on TV, unless it's a car commercial, it's mostly mm -hmm. humor driven. And mm -hmm. those really cool visual storytelling that you see a lot in Europe, mm -hmm. I'm not seeing as much here anymore. I'm not mm -hmm. seeing a lot of the heavy motion design work anymore. Not on TV. No, not I totally TV. agree with you. Yeah. I see, you know, now it's the content game. And this it's, this game's already showing signs that it's about to peter out as well. But you know, the longer form content. So there's some super interesting stuff being done there by motion design studios and animation studios. Uh, the budgets aren't great. You know, they're typically thirty to $50,000 as opposed to $250,000. Right. And so you have to have, you know, a smaller, more nimble team or, or you're able to, you know, handle a few of them at the same time. Yeah. Okay. Um, we're a little over time. Are you okay to hang out for a few more minutes? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to fire totally. a few more questions here. Let's yeah, truly do this in lightning round fashion. Let me just get my notes out here. Okay, cool. All right. Um, that one's too hard, I think, to answer. Okay. Uh, Jason Lin asked this question. What's the end game for an animator 
to work and then die? I mean, where does one go if you're in Oh, this the is the one that I actually responded philosophically to and I was a prick to. Jason, I'm sorry. Yeah, I hope you, you I hope you understand that. I, fe I felt this question. What is the end game? What the what are we all doing here anyways? <laughs> right? Uh, it's a kind of angst-driven question, and I mean that like in a sympathetic way. Um, the, so the lightning round answer to this is, um, if you're questioning, you know, what your end goal is, and and you know where you're pointed in your work, um, there, you know, there should be uh, some interplay between your work and your personal life. I think, and any time that I have felt really lost in my work life and it's happened a lot um i've noticed that i just didn't have direction in my personal life as well they feed each other or they should right they should they should kind of be in alignment with each other you don't have to be doing the same thing in both your work life and your personal life but um when i create too big of a wall between my personal life and my work life i tend to lose direction in both mm. um and so it sounds like i think in jason's case and 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 in, in many people's cases you just, this is a good time to step back if at all possible give yourself some space uh you know to think about what you're really doing stephen covey who's like a big you know guru of of self-improvement and productivity and all that he said a lot of times we we spend our lives climbing a ladder and we never question which wall it's leaning against and uh i think it's just as important to question to ask that you know what, what wall am i leaning against here and and maybe even be ready to admit that you know, it's not leaning against the right wall at all. And maybe you do change careers and change direction entirely. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's my, my basic response to that is that that question is stemming from a deeper issue that goes beyond just career, right? Uh, it goes, it goes into um, personal fulfillment, personal values. What is the, what's going to give you value in your life? And then how can you make your career align with that? Right. I love that. My my take on that for Jason, it, I, I interpreted the question a little bit differently. It's like, okay. do I just stay a worker bee for all my life and then die? And my ah. my 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 response to that is, you know, you got to just keep evolving. Whether you're a one person studio, a freelancer, a full time employee, or you're one of these institutionalized motion design firms, you mm. got to evolve with the times. Blockbuster cool. at one point believed they were invincible. Tower Records dominated the space, <laughs> and look what happened to these giants, the juggernauts. Okay, so you gotta good. just evolve. That's good. Okay, Jessica Libby asks, "Just here we go, specialist or generalist? What's your take on that?" Yeah. Uh, so, and then she had a follow-up, which I thought was important. She asked, "And does market matter?" Because she's in right. a smaller city, yes. and I think it does matter. I mean, I we lived in Savannah for a while, and my wife was trying to work there. Um, so, in general, I think if you're in a smaller market, you're gonna probably be better off being a generalist. But know that that's not necessarily going to be a path to happiness. <laughs> in smaller markets, uh, people aren't usually, they're not as kind of up to speed on the value that you can provide as a motion designer. Um, and so you're going to be making a lot of compromises. Um, also, the generalist path is one of just near total uh, unfulfillment. And if, you, if you're a generalist, it's probably because you're like me, you're, you like a lot of different things. You're excited by a lot of different things. Um, but you'll never get that satisfaction of feeling that you've really mastered any of them, that jack-of-all-trades problem, right? right? If you're cool with that, great. Be a generalist. Um, uh, as I've gotten older, I mean, I, I, there's a lot of value in specialization. In larger markets, in larger shops, uh, specialization tends to be, you know, very important. Um, later, as you, uh, you kind of climb 
the ranks, if, if you're in a larger shop uh, or a larger market and you become an art director and then, you know, CD or something like that, creative director, um, you stop making the work yourself anyway, so you should uh, in many cases. You, your hands aren't going to be necessarily on the, the tablet or the keyboard making the work. And so um, you kind of become a generalist naturally in an organic way um, as you become, you know, more of a, a creative leader for your organization. So that's something that kind of works itself out over time. I don't know if I answered the question, but that's my response to it. Great. All right. Second to last question for you. Hen Paperman, I hope I said that name right. Uh, she, mm-hmm. she wanted to know about dealing with self-doubt and judgment. Oh, cool. I missed that question. Um, that is a great one. It's one I, I deal with all the time. Uh, this is great. My, my lawn is being mowed as we speak. <laughs> I live in it, and there's my dog. <laughs> <laughs> saying get off this podcast. That is great. Little, yeah, this is home life. Life in a place where you can have a yard. Um, it's, uh, okay, yeah. there. That's so, right. um, Go ahead. Answer the question. Great. Come here, Priya. This is my dog, Priya. Come here. Um, self-doubt is something I deal with all the time. Um, and uh, I think there's... The first thing is just don't listen to that voice, right? I mean... That's the dog, right? Yeah, this is my, this is my dog. Can you hear her growling? She's very... Uh, this is my voice of self-doubt, my dog. Um, but uh, you have to know that, like, every person who's ever been successful has also probably been riddled by self-doubt. The ones that, the ones that don't... Uh, have any self-doubt are insufferable usually you don't want to be around them um i know a few of them but um so self-doubt is normal natural healthy uh listen to it i guess if it's saying anything valuable you know listen to if it's saying you need to get better at you know your figure drawing cool work on that but uh beyond that i think for me the 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 best thing that i've done is i've reached out to people that i trust whether it's people in the community in the you know industry or not doesn't matter um, with friends, and I just kind of talk about it with them, and it's basically like poor man's therapy, right? The more you talk about it, the more you take the power away from that self-doubt. You take the wind out of the sails of the self-doubt just by talking about it. It doesn't matter if there's any solutions or anything you know, being offered. Uh, talking works, and it's really, and talking and, and you know, being with other people really, really works. It's very powerful. Great. So you're saying essentially embrace self-doubt as part of just the creative life and yep. find others to, to help kind of share the experience and, and don't like carry it inside, right? Yeah, that was much better said. Exactly. <laughs> Easy to summarize and to come up with the idea. <laughs> okay. Sure. All right. Here's your last question. What makes you happy, Justin? Oh, that's a good one. Uh, hmm. Making stuff makes me happy, which is hard because as I get older, I realize I can't make stuff directly as much anymore but making things that specifically making things that other people find valuable for whatever reason um that makes me happy and i'm learning how to collaborate and do that with other people and that's bringing me a new kind of happiness i mean i'm 40 years old it's kind of it's kind of sad to admit that i'm just now understanding how to collaborate and work with other people but um, as I get better at it, it's also making me happy in a, in a new way that I didn't know was possible. So just just for me to clarify, when you say making stuff makes you happy, the yeah. stuff that you make, is it like an ideal day where you sit down and you're able to look at a motion piece and write a piece that might move people? No, that used to be it. I'd say probably six or seven years ago, that was it. Um, now, uh, software. If I write 10 lines of code, and then you can interact with that code somehow and something happens. 
it's it's weird. Like I get a smile on my face now just talking about it. It's the most gratifying thing ever. Making something that works that is in a kind of black and white way, right? That works is so freaking satisfying. It's very different than design, right? Because in design, you can make something that you think is beautiful and that your wife thinks is beautiful uh, and your mom might think is beautiful. But then, you know, good luck getting everybody else to agree on that. But in the world of like software and products and stuff, uh, there's obviously still a lot of subjective, you know, feelings about how things look and work and all that. But you, at the end of the day, there's there's a an engineering test where you can say like, look, the thing I pushed the button, the thing works, it didn't break, hooray, let's go home, you know, and and uh, that's an amazing feeling, and I'm I'm really excited to get better and better at building things like that 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 you know that work, that just do things that work. <laughs> This is Justin Cohn, and you are listening to The Future. The Future is hosted by me, Chris Doe. The show is edited by Stuart Schuster. Big thanks to Adam Sanborn, who composed our theme song. To subscribe to The Future podcast, check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and now SoundCloud. Make sure you rate and review our episodes. Don't miss out on upcoming events, live streams, workshops, and announcements by going to thefuture.com and sign up for the newsletter link at the bottom. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Future Is Here. Thanks for listening. That's it for this episode. See you in the future.